Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hello, I'm Gemma and welcome to another episode of Good Influence. This is the podcast where each week you and I meet a guest who will help us pay attention to something we should know about as well as answer some of your questions. This week we're talking about well-being and medication myths, daily wellness habits and how to choose the right ones for you, navigating social media advice, and how to approach talking about mental illness medication with the appropriate nuance. So joining me this week is Dr. Sarah Vora, otherwise known online as the Mind Medic. Sarah is a consultant psychiatrist with over 10 years experience working in the NHS, a speaker and author as well as content creator, using her social media platforms to share guidance and tips for our well-being, as well as debunking myths and conflicting advice about mental health. If you are someone that has a coffee on a morning, maybe to get your exposure to natural daylight, you may decide to open the back doors and, and sit outside and have your coffee outside. It's more likely that those habits will stick if you stack them on top of an existing habit. You use your platforms to share daily well-being tips. So starting with the basics, what does mental well-being look like to you? Why is that the kind of language you choose to talk about it? So I think, I mean, first and foremost, I'm a consultant psychiatrist. So I generally assess and treat individuals who have mental illness and disorder and I think what we've noticed particularly over the last couple of years I think with the pandemic is there's been a real focus on mental health and well-being so not necessarily sort of the severe end of the spectrum that I might see in clinic but just about encouraging people to look after their minds daily because I think it's been drilled into us that we need to exercise or eat right to look after our physical health. And I think all too often people forgo the stuff that we need to be doing to look after our mental health. Mm -hmm. And so I think a lot of social media, sort of that wellness space has been taken over um, by focusing a bit more on our mental health and well-being. So the things that we can do that mean that it's going to support happier, healthier minds in essence. Um, and I think all too often that can feel like it's something that is a luxury or something that you have to pay a lot of money in order to achieve. But actually it is about starting small and doing some really easy, actionable um, habits that happen the moment you wake up right through to the moment you go to sleep. Um, and it's about making it individual for everyone. So what might be working for me may not necessarily be something that helps you. Um, so I think it is a process of trial and error. So I think utilising my platform to bring a bit of what I bring in from the clinic room mm -hmm. to a more mainstream platform and just making it a lot more accessible for people. Yeah, which is great because I feel like everyone, as you say, like it's been an odd couple of years to say the least, I think yeah people are realizing that we can tune in a bit more to our own mental health and well-being like you say rather than you know that meaning you are suffering from any kind of mental illness it's about looking after your mind and yourself before you ever get to the point of needing someone else's intervention kind of thing absolutely and I think that's the thing a lot of the time when I see people in clinic they will say I noticed this time last year that things were going down south and I noticed that my concentration was affected or I had less enjoyment in things. And a lot of the time we're so busy that you almost kind of put that to the side. It's not a priority. You may um, put relationships as a priority. You might have kids, in which case you prioritise them and you get lower and lower down in terms of the list of priorities. And it may not be that you seek help until something awful happens or maybe until you've completely burnt out that you're not able to operate or function at all. Mm -hmm. So I think the key really is trying to introduce those habits as early as possible and making it part of a preventative approach to your mental health as opposed to, you know, treating 
the illness or disorder when it's it's gone so far yeah absolutely so I mean how should we feel air quotes if our mental well-being is good what's the kind of aim that we're going for because I've got a feeling you're going to say it's not feeling 100% happy all of the time (laughs) yeah exactly and I think that's the key because I think there can be this notion that being mentally healthy is being free or void of any emotion or negative emotion rather but actually it is about feeling a sort of sense of contentment a balance amongst kind of moments that feel quite difficult and and moments that bring you joy um it's not to say that you're not going to have challenging situations in life absolutely there'll be times that challenge you but actually being able to process those work through them um rather than it be at the expense of your mental health so I think a lot of the time people can get this in this idea that they're trying to achieve 100% happiness and that is is not the key at all and I think I have this conversation a lot with individuals where if we have started medication for instance if if it's mm. that they're so low and so anxious such that they're not able to even engage in therapy because they're not in a place that they can concentrate or be motivated to be able to make the changes that are required in therapy a lot of the time we may look at medication as a means to support the therapeutic work. And as soon as things start to improve, and a lot of people refer to it as that sort of fog lifting, we have Mm. conversations about what does better look like for you. And again, a lot of the time people won't say, I want to be a different version of what I was before I became unwell. A lot of the time it's just, I want to be able to walk out of my front door and not feel this overwhelming sense of anxiety and panic. Or Mm -hmm. I want to be able to make myself a breakfast and not feel like a chore. Or I want to be able to spend time with loved ones and not be clock watching and thinking that something awful is going to happen and that I need to return home immediately. So I think it's about recognising that it's not to say that those difficulties won't be present but actually feeling more manageable alongside your day-to-day yeah that's a really interesting way to think about it because I feel like I mean as someone who talks about this kind of thing a lot I feel like if I hear the phrase kind of mental well-being I do still think of it as a kind of sense of self kind of thing and, and like as a feeling rather than what it actually comes down to as you say the really practical things and how our lives are affected by our mental state. Yeah. That's an interesting one. I like that. <laughs> so we're going to, you mentioned um, medication, which we'll come on to in a little bit, because I know we were going to have, going to have a chat about that, but you were also saying about some well-being practices, taking into account that not everything works the same way for everyone. What are some of the most basic and I suppose commonly effective wellness practices that we could be doing so I think the pandemic was perfect for highlighting actually what was really important in terms of mental well-being practices because if we think about what the COVID pandemic forced us to do it forced us to be in one place at one time it limited our ability to go outdoors it limited our social interactions it didn't make distinctions between our daytime and our nighttime routines in the sense that actually for a lot of people, you know, they wouldn't leave their front door at all. And that exposure to natural daylight is absolutely crucial for maintaining our natural sleep-wake cycles, for instance, and helping support a good night's sleep. So if we kind of think about that, actually the pandemic kind of shone a light on those practices that we probably did without even realising. So yeah. that ability to separate and distinguish between our daytime and nighttime is absolutely crucial because one of the things that our bodies rely on is a loss of daylight and a return of daylight to reset our body's natural sleep-wake cycles. So if you're cooped up indoors constantly, actually your body is not necessarily going to get the cue that it needs to indicate when it's ready for sleep, um, to release the appropriate hormones to trigger those pathways for sleep, for instance. Mm. So what I would always say is kind of the first most is that a good night's sleep starts the moment that you wake up in the morning. So as soon as you wake up, making sure that you get outside into natural daylight as early as possible. Um, And again, that is to support the 
production later of our of an important hormone called melatonin so um, melatonin again supports a, a good night's sleep it triggers the pathway needed for a good night's sleep the other thing is I think people forget about how much of an impact the bookends of our day can have on our mental health so I know that I'm incredibly guilty of it in terms of having my phone by my bedside and and it's my alarm clock and I think the issue is as soon as I switch my alarm off I'm then invited into what the rest of the world has to offer so what phone what messages have come in overnight what telephone calls have I missed oh let's have a little quick browse on social media and that's even before I've got out of bed and actually if you think about what that's doing to you that you're sat in your bed in your pajamas you know, you've got an hour, whatever it may be to get ready and started for the day. And instantly you may come across a message from work that sets up that sense of urgency that, okay, you can forego your shower and your leisurely breakfast because you need to get onto this email as soon as possible. Yeah. Or someone on social media has already got up and they've done an hour long yoga workout and they're now sitting down with their smoothie bowl and again instantly that feeds into your lack of inadequacy and guilt that actually have I not optimized or utilized my morning in an appropriate way so I think one of the things that you could do and I'm always met with a look of horror when I suggest this in clinic is just getting an old-fashioned alarm clock and I think the reason being is that it's not going to then lull you into what else is in store that it actually forces you to switch the alarm clock and then immediately get out of bed and to start your morning routine and before reaching for your phone to avoid getting pulled into other people's sense of urgency or other people's priorities I'd encourage people just to do the things that make you feel better able to tackle the day ahead so whether or not it's grabbing a leisurely shower or maybe doing a workout or having your breakfast or chatting to a loved one those things before it's not to say that when you do open that email inbox that you're not going to be on high alert or feel worried about it but at least you know that you're primed for it you know it's a, it's a very different setup than if you were just sat in your bed in your pajamas and you suddenly get overwhelmed with all these tasks that you've suddenly got to do and you've not even got out and brushed your teeth yet so I think first and foremost making sure that invest in an alarm clock if you are someone that is likely to get tempted by what else your phone has to offer, doing the things that you know are going to help you and and prime you for the day ahead, getting outside for some natural daylight. And for some people that may come in their commute to work. And I think the other thing that I think particularly the pandemic has been poor for is it's blurred the boundaries even more so around our work and our downtime, because how many Mm. people I see on their commute checking their emails, firing off things. And I think actually technically they probably don't start at that time. But again, utilising that commute time for something that is a bit more lighthearted or, some, you know, use it as an opportunity to listen to a podcast, to listen to an audio book. Again, just priming yourself in, in the best um, possible position to be able to deal with the stresses of, of day-to-day life. The other thing that the pandemic shone light on and I think a lot of people coming out the other side are really struggling with is that lack of social connection that was suddenly enforced on us and not just you know it's great being able to see people online and virtually but actually that tactile and you know the physical presence of having somebody I think a lot of people have lost the confidence of reintroducing that into their day-to-day life since the pandemic um, so, you know, it's not to the degree that people are, you know, socially anxious or, or, or not able to manage those social situations, but almost not having the, the confidence to, to preempt them. So what I would encourage people to do is, you know, even if it's a Sunday evening or Monday, looking at your week ahead and making sure that your social connections are not just work related and you are optimising and making time for, you know, sort of friends and families, um, because, if say work's particularly stressful, those social connections are not necessarily going to recharge you or help you to recuperate. They're just going to mm-hmm. exacerbate the stress you're already feeling. But there is research that suggests that the people that we surround ourselves with, particularly in times of stress, are hugely important because they can help us make sense of that stress and also reduce the effect it would otherwise have on us. So I can't say enough actually how important it is to prioritise social connections, even if 
you're horrendously busy. There is always time if it's 10, 15 minutes, you know, if that's all you can offer. But just having time to see someone outside of, of work, I think is really important. The other thing is exercise. So again, I think this sort of over the last 10, 15 years, um, there's been a real shift in how we view exercise. Initially, it was very much viewed in the way of it being a punishment to sort of an earn and burn mentality. But actually, I'm I'm hopeful that I'd say in the last sort of two or three years, and I think the COVID pandemic did shine a light on actually utilising exercise, you know, that one hour that we had to go out and, and do with it Freedom. what we wanted. <laughs> Everyone utilised that because actually suddenly it, it, the importance of just getting outside, again, we've spoken about natural daylight, but just getting outside and moving our bodies can help alleviate stress, can help um, improve our mood, and it can also help regulate our sleep and appetite. So again, some form of movement, and it doesn't have to be movement in the sense of it having to be a hit or something overly um, strenuous, just something that's going to mm. get your heart pumping. And I think the other thing is screen use in general. So I think a lot of people, again, are are glued to their screens in some form. And I know my husband is absolutely terrible for this, that he does this sort of multitasking, multi-screen tasking where we'll be glued to watching a box set, he'll have his laptop off, he'll have his phone on. And you just think, which screen are you actually paying attention to? Um, yeah. And I know, again, I'm guilty of it. I think, oh, just a bit of online shopping whilst we're chewing into a box set. But actually, screen use, particularly late at night, um, screens emit um, a blue light and blue light blocks the, the crucial hormone that I mentioned earlier, melatonin. And mm-hmm. again, melatonin is so important for triggering the pathways to help us sleep. So it's really important. I'm, I'm not going to be a killjoy and say, don't don't watch anything late at night but it's about thinking if you are someone that struggles with your sleep and we know that sleep can impact our performance the following day it can make us feel quite tired it can affect our concentration and even our mood and if those sounds familiar there is stuff that you can do and it's about maybe setting yourself a realistic curfew so if you're someone that doesn't get to bed until half 11 and that for you is a preferable bedtime you know 30 minutes beforehand just making sure that you shut down your screens, you read a book, you know, you maybe get in the bath. So another thing that our bodies need to do in order to get a good night's sleep is it our bodies need to drop their core temperature. So a bath is a perfect um, way of kind of speeding that along. So having a bath and then getting into bed at your preferred time. So all these simple measures from the start of your day. So again, like I said, that old old fashioned alarm clock, making sure that you prioritise something for yourself rather than getting pulled into the external world that early on, exercise, social connections, and then thinking about your screen use um, at the latter end of the day as well. Well, I mean... I'm feeling very attacked by some of these examples. <laughs> but, but I'm guilty makes, too, Gemma. <laughs> I mean, this is the thing. It makes me feel better to hear, you know, someone like you, this is literally what you do for a living, but to hear you say, you know, I'm quite bad for having my phone next to the bed, for example. And I think it's something that we see actually in a lot of different areas. I mean, climate and um, that kind of activism immediately springs to my mind. But the kind of idea that we see now where, there's a real perfectionism to it. And if you're not going to do every single thing absolutely perfectly, then what's the point? And I think a lot of maybe sometimes what we see on social media where you'll see um, different influencers and people in certain spaces where it'll be, you know, this is what I do in a day and these are my well-being practices and kind of seeing people do every single thing perfectly all throughout their day that is all geared, geared up towards having you know, this ideal state of well-being, which for people who do do that, you know, more power to you, great. But is it still worth, you know, trying to work on things in different areas, even if say, so having my phone late at night is one that I'm particularly bad for. And also, yeah, working from home, I'd say what you were saying about, you know, daylight and getting out, out into the day and breaking up your day to night routine. That's definitely one that I'm not very good at. But how do we, I don't know, find the balance and kind of get to be okay with doing certain practices and 
still recognizing that we don't have to be perfect in all the areas like where where's the best place to begin would you say I think first you've hit the nail on the head in terms of you know it's not about striving for perfection because I think the problem is as soon as you say absolutely no screens half an hour to an hour before bed and then there's that one evening where you know that box set runs a little bit later than you'd anticipated and then you think oh that's it it's over it's done Um, I'm not gonna I can't do this it's too much of a difficult change to make and then you decide to swing the other way and, and just forget about it altogether so I think the thing that I always tell individuals that I see is thinking about what is a problem for you at the moment so I know for instance if I turned around to my husband and said you do need to limit your screen time he's like well why because I'm sleeping fine and actually I'm performing well the following day so for him I'm not going to preach to him that he should come off his screens half an hour before bed if it's not an issue for him mm-hmm. um one of the sort of easy exercises that I try to get people to do is something called a day in the life off and I always use my um, my seven-year-old as an example for this. So people will think, actually, what does a seven-year-old have to feel sad about or unhappy about? But it's just to kind of paint the idea that actually this is an easily translatable exercise. So mm-hmm. if we think that she gets up at the crack of dawn um, at 6 a.m. in the morning she gets herself dressed, ready for the day. She goes downstairs. Immediately, she she wants a breakfast like on the table. She wants it half an hour ago. She watches her favourite TV box set. And then normally, if it's, a, it's during term time, we'll send her off to school and she's relatively happy. And generally, we don't hear a peep from the teachers. Now, if I was noticing she wasn't getting up until half seven, eight. I mean, I'd probably celebrate if I'm honest, because actually that would be a win (laughs) for me. (laughs) But for her, that's such an unusual thing for her. You know, she's someone that she's up at the crack of dawn. If I noticed I was going through to her room and she wasn't dressed and she was a bit uh, irritable, she was off her food, she had no interest in watching her favourite TV programme, that would kind of lead me to question, okay, there's something going on with her, either a physical health or a mental health. And then you almost become a bit of a detective and think, okay, what's changed? So it may be that we've just come back from a week abroad and actually her body's still trying to adjust to the new pattern being back in the UK. It may be that she'd had a sort of a really busy weekend where we're a lot more sociable and she wasn't getting to bed until later. So actually you can then pinpoint the the practices that you need to implement. So that's about kind of resetting um, your bedtime routine, making sure that she's eating well, that she's getting, you know, enough um, exercise. So what I would say is there's a temptation now that I've kind of shared all these tips and everyone's going to say, right, okay, no, and you kind of try it all at once and then you're not going to know what's made the difference. So I'd probably encourage people just to do that day in the life of exercise and think, okay, is there something that's off or has shifted from my baseline? So am I noticing that I am a bit more irritable and am I noticing that I'm not getting to bed until late? Okay, is there a change that I can make there? And I think the key also is sticking at one change long enough to see the benefits through and it's never going to be a quick fix and even when we do prescribe a medication for people that I see it's always going to be in conjunction with other things like therapy and with the lifestyle changes and again that's all takes time to to see the effects so I think it is a bit of trial and error what works for one person is not going to necessarily work for another and I would just encourage people just to see see things through long enough to to see the benefits from them and also just to reflect on on how those changes are going if if you are seeing the benefits I think it's important just to take note of those um, as well yeah definitely would you have any advice for people when navigating this kind of wellness advice and content sort of stuff on social media because I feel like I feel like on social media in general you have to be quite mindful that not everything you come across even though you know we're in such these algorithm bubbles now and you really get fed stuff that's meant to resonate not everything we come across has necessarily been been published with us in mind kind of thing and I think that's something that in my experience being online people can be quite 
Bada is kind of coming across some kind of advice or piece of content or something and thinking to themselves, actually, that doesn't apply to me. That's not for me. I'm going to leave that and move on. Rather than, you know, other pieces might be, oh, no, that really rings a bell for me. And I think that might be helpful. How do we kind of navigate these spaces and realize what advice is actually going to be useful for us? Because I feel like in um, wellness and maybe psychiatry and those kind of things, people are sharing a lot of content that is really, really helpful for people. But maybe people don't always know which bits to pick out that apply to them. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, it does completely. And I think it comes back to, I mean, the wellness industry is just inundated we're overwhelmed as soon as you pick up your phone you're fed and I think even more so with the changing algorithms you're fed a lot more things that you feel you ought to try I would always suggest that people go in there with a an air of cynicism in the sense of just be critical in and and look at the uh, advice so as an example we know that the um sort of the diet and fitness industry have profited off essentially making um in, inferring that people are that inferring that there's a problem and then being on hand to sell the solution to people yeah so it, there may be something within a, a piece of content that you see online where you think oh okay should I feel like that about my body or should I feel like that about my friendship group okay look at the person that's are they trying to sell me something I think that yeah. can also that can be quite helpful um because if you feel that it's a ploy to sell you something I think you're more likely to take whatever's being served to you with a pinch of salt and again obviously I know people you know there, there are businesses online that are you know need to be profitable and, and need to survive but yeah. I think the, the best piece of advice is question it was this a difficulty for you prior to you seeing the content that's a very good question and yeah. if the answer is no then look at the content more clearly is there a link link to buy you know a, a pay x amount each month and are they trying to sell you a solution to a problem that actually wasn't actually a problem for you to begin with I think that can be quite a helpful question to sort of and I think often social media doesn't allow us to stop and think more critically about the information yeah. that we're being served. So I think just having that pause and, and asking yourself quite clearly, was this a problem for me before? If not, do I need, do I need to be aware of what the solution is? Probably not. And, and then move on. And I think also just being able to streamline your feed and following content and creators that resonate with you you know you can have the same piece of wellness advice and actually the way that some one person delivers it might feel quite jarring for you and actually the way another person delivers it may speak to you more readily so I think having the confidence to unfollow those accounts that don't speak to you or even worse that make you feel quite negative or or, or make you feel quite judged um and actually following creators um and, and content that actually speaks to you there's a bit more compassion there and actually feels achievable I think it's really important yeah definitely I think it's it is key to remember on social media you know we're all very different people so not everything that people put out is going to be the exact right thing for you and they might not 100% have specifically you in mind when they make that piece of content and that's okay because it's not your internet it's our internet <laughs> so <laughs> feel free to find the stuff that makes you happy but don't expect everything to make you happy. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the other thing that I would also bear in mind is, and this is probably speaking more from with my professional hat on, is that if you're following someone online and they are giving you individual bespoke advice, absolutely steer clear because, you mm -hmm. know, one of the things we do as sort of have as doctors is that we're regulated by a regulatory body and we absolutely should not be giving individual bespoke advice online. So I think often what people will find is that they find a piece of content they like, they reach out to that creator, they'll 
tell them their life story in however many characters that the sort of DM will allow. Mm. And they, in return, that individual will give them a bespoke individual plan with actually no understanding of their backstory, their medical history. So I think, again, big red flag is if you are asking someone for personal advice and they're able to deliver that without uh, you know appropriately assessing you in a in a proper capacity then that is something to stay clear off as well yeah definitely and I think that leads us very nicely into another little section of chat I suppose so you and I connected and decided to record this episode um when you replied to a story of mine and it was uh in a Q&A on Instagram I've responded to somebody's uh question about anxiety medication and I'll read the message that you wrote to me just to lead us in because I think it's a good summation so you said I think there are a lot of misconceptions around medication that scaremonger people out of something that might be helpful for them often it's a case that people present late and in a far worse place with respect to their mental state due to what they've quote-unquote heard about medication on socials and I think that where we've just been talking about you know it's very important that we're not getting specific medical advice about our individual health and situations from social media please bear that in mind for the rest of this conversation because (laughs) we're gonna have a chat about medication but yeah this does not constitute or substitute your doctor's advice with all that being said let's talk about people talking about mental health medications on social media yeah no absolutely and I think that's when I I saw your story I just felt that it was incredibly balanced and you you weren't professing to you know knowing it all with respect to the medication or or giving any advice and I think but I think often you will find creators that will do that and that's really concerning because I think um, you know in terms of anecdotal experience and you know someone can have a really really ropey experience of being on an antidepressant for instance or an anti-anxiety medication and they may feel that they need to be really vocal and warn people about the effects of that without kind of realizing who is on the other side of that so you may have two camps you might have someone who doesn't have any mental illness or disorder generally is is mentally healthy and who able who is able to sort of see that experience for for what it is But on the other end of the spectrum, you may have someone who's in the grips of a severe anxiety or the grips of a a severe clinical depression who sees that and thinks there's no hope now. They're probably already feeling rock bottom and they've probably not even accessed the support that they need because they feel so hopeless. And actually seeing that sort of content where it feels quite damning about medication and quite negative about someone's own personal experience. Mm-hmm. Maybe the difference between someone reaching out to their doctor and trialing medication for the first time or not. Because I mean, I think, I mean, I've been a psychiatrist now for I'm trying to think 12, over 12 years. And there have been a lot of people, and this is even with the changes in terms of social media and how much content in social media has changed in that time I still see people that present really late because of the misinformation that they see in line you know I I follow this person and they've said that antidepressants are addictive or that I will feel a lot worse and there's no point and that has made the difference between me presenting you know a few months ago or presenting to you today and a lot of the time they're in a far worse position than they would have been had they come to me a few months prior and again it's not to say that that progress can't be made but just the idea of someone having suffered for that long yeah and it's not to say that their experience would have been the same as the experience that they saw online so I think again being able to sort of look at that content more critically to think that is that person's experience you know we are all individual and again you know there may be times where medication is a negative experience for some people and isn't the answer for some people but then we have an awful lot of people where it in cases that I've seen it's literally made the difference between life and death for someone that Mm -hmm. actually someone can be so hopeless 
incredibly suicidal and actually medication has enabled them to lift them out of that space in order to engage them with the therapeutic work which is going to be where the mainstay of the work is going to come from anyway um yeah so I've kind of, I, I've got the, I suppose, luxury of seeing the, the benefits that it can offer. Absolutely, there are times where it really doesn't work for people. But I think being able to think more critically about the things that you see online and, and just taking it with a pinch of salt. Yeah, definitely. I think it's a really nuanced kind of conversation, or if it isn't, it should be. Because, I mean, even in my personal experience, so I was very much one of those people you kind of described where I ended up going on antidepressants and uh, seeking that kind of help far later than I should have done and it would have been better to do it sooner which I think was you know probably partly to do with whatever kind of stigmas I'd absorbed and and you know a lot of other factors as well so I agree for sure that you know, people coming out very negatively against, you know, whole classes of medication can be very damaging and not be helpful for people. However, I think it's also true that we should be able to, you know, kind of hold space for people to talk about their experiences of taking different kind of medications. Because I think you honestly see both sides where some people won't have had the experience that they wanted from a medication and therefore you know say quote you know all antidepressants are bad and don't work as as a hyperbolic example um but also I feel like you will sometimes see other content and I get that it's people you know trying to reclaim and take take power and be empowered in their experience but kind of saying xyz medication is the best medication in the world and has made this massive difference for me and you know definitely works for this condition and kind of kind of does it both ways and that's something I've definitely seen more um from an ADHD perspective actually which isn't a mental illness is something different but in terms of the way people talk about medication and yeah, I just, I think it can be harmful both ways, but equally they're really important conversations to have. Oh, 100%. And I'm mindful that I have only spoken about the times where, and again, it's probably reflective of the experience that I see generally coming through the door, which is what they've perceived on social media to yeah, be absolutely. the case is not always married up with their own individual experience. But mm-hmm. I completely agree. I think, I think for a lot of people going on medication can sometimes feel, I think, from, I'm speaking from the patients that I see, there can often be a sense of shame in going on medication at times yeah. that I should be able to do this without medication um, and something that we don't readily um, come forward about in much the same way as that you would if you were taking a medication for a, a physical ailment, you know, take something simple as you've got a headache, there's almost kind of a broadcast, anyone got any paracetamol? Oh, you've got paracetamol? You know, there's kind of, there's no shame in requesting the medication or alerting people to the fact that you are taking medication for it. And I think that there still is that element. So I, I completely appreciate actually what you've said about people sharing their more positive experiences of medication can there can be a sense of kind of community around that i know that um dr alex george has done some work the first of each month where he gets people to sort of post their pill and again i think his his work is around oh, yeah, trying to that. reduce the stigma around taking medication and i think that mm-hmm. for some respect that can help people feel less alone in in sort of taking medication which i think leads on to my other myth and common misconception this idea that once you're on medication you have to be on it lifelong and that is not always the case you know actually what we should be doing and what you know I certainly do in my practice is once we start the medication and we start to see those improvements we're already talking about when might be an opportunity to get you off the medication and again you know some people may turn around to me and say this is working for me. I don't want to come off it. Mm-hmm. Whereas other people may be absolutely desperate for the medication just to do what it needs to do and then be supported in coming off it safely. So as an example, um, one of the things around antidepressants is that you can come off medication 
when you've when your doctor has observed your symptoms have improved and you've returned to your normal level of functioning so if you've got someone who's moderately or severely depressed or anxious and their life has completely turned around as a result of the medication that they're going out they're seeing to their self-cares they're sleeping better their appetite's improved they're no longer suicidal from that moment assuming that those changes continue and you continue to observe the progress your doctor might start talking to you about coming off the medication after at least six to 12 months of that progress being consistent. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, that is important that they have got that sort of finish line and that end goal in mind because they, for whatever reason, may not want to continue making medication. Whereas you might have someone that has that period of stability, but then there's the fear that if I come off it, then it's all going to unravel. Yeah. Um, so again, it comes back to there's no one size fits all. There's no approach that we take that is a blanket approach we take for everyone. It's very much guided by conversations between you and your doctor. And it should be a collaborative, a joint, a joint decision as to when that is. But I think the key is that, and again, I think some of the things I've seen on social media are about people talking about weaning myself off the medication or I'm just, I've decided I don't want to be on medication anymore. I'm taking myself off. And I think those messages can be quite um, concerning because, again, that should be absolutely something that happens with medical supervision. Um, yeah. Because if you abruptly stop your medication, actually your symptoms can come back far worse and you could be in a much worse place than you were to begin with. So it's not to say that medication is something you have to be on lifelong or that your doctor wants to keep you on it lifelong. If you do want to come off the medication, it's really important that you seek the advice from your doctor and they support you in doing that safely. Yeah, definitely. I mean, also as someone who's been through the ringer over the years, I have come off medication without speaking to a doctor first and it's a really bad idea. And please learn from my mistake and don't do that. Please speak to a doctor first. Okay, so let's uh, maybe finish up this section. So if we think about, you know, we're, we're talking about medication and the kind of misconceptions and what might maybe put people off or make people anxious about medication. So imagining that someone is in a position where they've got to the point and have spoken to a doctor about their mental health and the doctor has suggested that maybe some kind of medication might be helpful for them. And then that person feels quite anxious and panicked about that and doesn't, doesn't really know whether to say yes or whether to say no what are maybe some good questions that you should be asking your doctor in that scenario in terms of what what do people need to know from their doctors about that medication whether that's you know how long will I be on it what's the process of coming on and going off sort of thing what what should people be asking their doctors before they make those individual decisions so I think first and foremost um have have we tried everything that we could try before I need to take this medication. So I think often, you know, consultations can be quite time poor. I mean, it depends, again, if you've gone to your GP or whether your GP's referred you on to someone like myself um, mm -hmm. for sort of a specialist um, opinion. But I think first and foremost, one of the things we think about medication is it, it needs to be the least restrictive. So putting someone on medication is not a decision that we make lightly because it subjects you to side effects. And actually one of the questions we have to ask is, are the side effects more, so is the, if, are the risks of putting this person on medication more than if they weren't on the medication? So mm -hmm. for instance, if say someone is severely depressed, actually the side effects may be that actually, whilst we recognise the side effects, the risk of them not being on this medication and improving their depression is greater. Therefore, we need to make the decision to put them on it. So I think um, when we kind of see someone in clinic, you know, obviously, first and foremost, we'd always offer them some therapeutic work, whatever that may look like, whatever may be suited to their early life experiences or what's going on for them at the moment. So I suppose I would want, I'd, I'd hope that in the consultation, you'd have a discussion about, well, this has been tried, this, this form of therapy has been tried. And we've noticed that you're really struggling to motivate yourself for the work, or you're struggling to focus, or you don't have the energy for the therapeutic work. And therefore, that's why we're putting you on the medication to support you engaging the therapeutic work. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's making sure that 
the doctor has kind of exhausted all the other options prior to considering medication. And I think also asking your doctor what is going to be happening alongside the medication. So it may be that you may not be in a position even to start the therapy um, or the therapeutic work at the point of starting medication because actually you're still severely depressed, severely anxious. I'm mindful that we're we're talking mainly about depression and anxiety, but clearly there are other um, mental health disorders um, that could be at play for you. But I'm just thinking, referring to the sort of the most common that present. Yeah. So your doctor might say, look, you're not in a position to start any therapeutic work, but we will revisit in a couple of months or... So I think having some idea of what else is going to be offered alongside the medication can be helpful. Um, but a lot of people want to know, at what point will I start to feel better? And again, it's about managing those expectations that it's not going to be a quick fix. I mean, there are certain medications that may help with kind of acute anxiety for that moment when you feel quite acutely anxious or agitated. But those are not medications that you would have someone on you know, as long as you would have, say, an antidepressant. Yeah. But getting a, a, a sort of an idea from your doctor as to when do I expect that I will start to feel better from my symptoms. Um, side effects, I think, are really, really important just so that someone can make an informed decision because, you know, whilst a side effect like feeling sickly or a headache may not be a big deal for one person, someone who's got a history of migraine and or, you know has issues with respect to feeling sick may actually want to say, look, I know that there's a risk if we don't treat my depression, but at the moment that doesn't sound like it's one for me. So mm-hmm. maybe thinking about other options if the side effect profile that's been presented to you just doesn't doesn't fit with, with you. Um, and I think also thinking about, is this something that I have to take for a long time? And like coming back to my earlier point around it not necessarily being lifelong, having some idea from your doctor at what point they would look to withdraw and stop the medication and if that is a possibility as well. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Every week, my guest and I will be answering your questions, and the first one comes in from Feline, who says, After many years of struggling mentally, I feel great for the first time, but I can't really enjoy the moment because I always think about the bad times that might come again. How can I maintain positivity and enjoy my good mental state at the moment? Do you know, that's a really, really common worry for a lot of people, and again, I've I've got a really sort of simple exercise, and it is thinking more broadly about worry in general um and so as we go about our day if we think about how worry it may sort of utterly consume us to the point that we're not able to enjoy and in in this example of our guest listener that she's not able to enjoy the, the current and the present so what I would say is when you notice a worry and enter your mind ask yourself is this a problem solving worry or is this a might not worry So is this a worry that I can readily turn into a problem that I can solve at the moment or at some point and move on from? Or is this something that might not even happen and that is actually going to consume a lot of time and energy? And what I would say is at this moment, she's probably experiencing might not worry. It might not ever get as bad as it has been previously. And ruminating about that possibility that may not even come about is going to impact sort of your day-to-day impact, kind of your ability to enjoy social connections or to knuckle down with your job or, or whatever it may be. So I always utilize the notes section of my phone for this, that 
as those worries crop up in your mind, jot down those might not worries and tell yourself that you're going to come back to at the book end of the day. And you may ask me actually, but what happens if it's constantly coming in? Just repeat that practice and reinforce it. So every time that worry, if I, I worry that it's going to get as bad as it was previously, jot it down on your phone. And then at the bookend of your day, so I prefer this sort of last thing in the day, so around sort of half seven, eight o'clock, give yourself a, a worry curfew. So that's your opportunity to come back to that list that you've generated of my not worries. So once you come back to that, you, you can think, well, actually, that didn't happen. I've had a really positive day. So you kind of can strike off those lists of might not worries. Um, I'm thinking sort of more tangible example that prior to us recording today, I had a might not worry. You know, I could testify as we had a bit of a tech issue. And mm. I was worried that, well, what happens is not going to go ahead. What will Gemma think of me? Oh, my God, she's not going to invite me back to speak to her. You can see how very quickly that worry can run away with you. Yeah, Whereas definitely. actually, yeah, that's not a worry that I can turn into a problem that I can solve. Um, but actually the worry about trying to get logged on again and to make sure that we can continue with our conversation, I can turn that into a problem that I can solve by sourcing another lead and making sure that I'm downloading the right program. And yeah. can you see that that can feel quite empowering if you have an ability to turn that worry into a problem? So what I'd urge that guest listen to do and anyone that finds themselves utterly consumed by worry is to ask yourself, is this a worry that I can turn into a problem that I can solve? If so, solve the problem. And it might be about you outsourcing that support. So it might be about you know, you recognising that your skill set means that you're not able to solve the problem. So looking to friends and family to support you with that or work colleague um, and, and dedicating pockets of time in your day. So, for instance, if I come back to my worry list later on in the day, I can say, well, actually, I managed to get on the call and, I, you know, I think Gemma liked me. I don't think she thought I was, you know, incompetent. So. I did very much. <laughs> <laughs> but do you see, actually, rather than then getting caught up in that worry in the moment, you simply postponing it to say, right, not now. I'm not going to worry about this at the moment because I, I can't solve it at the moment. Mm -hmm. I'll postpone it and I'll come back to it. I love that because I think that's something I actually do kind of, kind of subconsciously, not in such a structured way. But I think I've kind of started doing that a bit whereby if something's happening three weeks away that I'm anxious about and I know that I'm going to be anxious about it because I just am and like I can, I can work through that now, but I know it's going to happen. I will kind of just say to myself, well, I'll start worrying about it a week before and then just kind of like take it out of my head a bit more for that, for that two weeks maybe and then I allow myself to start thinking about it and doing the kind of problem solving or just letting it take up more brain space a bit closer to the time so I quite like that because I feel like I'm half halfway to doing that so maybe that's something I can work on. Next question is from Bara who says I've got a question about medication myths. I've been taking a mood stabilizer for five months and it's definitely stabilized my moods and put some space between me and my thoughts. I'm thinking of going off it because it's got some side effects I don't like, but mostly because I feel like my mind now understands what it's like to be in this state and I could get there on my own. Is this a thing? So I think I, I mean, I'd absolutely signpost you to your own doctor for advice around this. Um, I think often when you are taking a medication like a mood stabiliser, absolutely there'll be a point where you feel sort of, oh, sorry, I don't like the word normal, but it's sort of a degree of normality around mm -hmm. your, your, your mood and your mental state. Um, but what I would say, and again, I, I can't advise because obviously I'm not aware of the listener's medical history or, or mental yeah, health sure. history. But what I would urge them to do is to speak to their doctor and Again, it's coming back to that point around those sort of earlier questions around how long you need to be on the medication and, and is, there a t is there a possibility of, of trialling a taper down and stopping? But those are absolutely things that need to be done alongside um, medical supervision. Mm -hmm. In terms of the kind of broader background thing there, and I mean, I don't know if you'll have an answer to this or not, but do you think it is sometimes the case that by being on some kind of mental health medication that it does allow us to allow us to kind of see a new way of thinking and that's then something you can 
learn from as well as the medication helping you to get to that place? So I think it's really difficult when I start medication, you you never know whether or not that person may have observed an improvement in their symptoms without the medication having been started. Because actually, yeah. I think there's also almost an assumption that the medication started and the medication has led to all of these really positive changes. But it may have been, and I sort of earlier re- referred to it as a fog, but that's just the, the, the words that my patients often use is kind of that lifting of that fog that mm-hmm. means that their concentration's able to improve such that they're able to read and they gain a lot of enjoyment from reading, for instance, um, which is something that they probably couldn't have done without the medication support with. Um, so I think it's really difficult to say absolutely these benefits that I've gained are from the medication entirely, but it may be that the medication has made other areas of your life more accessible and for instance socializing so if you're in the grips of depression actually socializing may be bottom of your list of priorities but actually the medication may help give you a bit more energy or you know reduce your um sorry um, improve your mood such that you're able to then socialize and then the socializing then has a positive impact on your mental health so I think Certainly, there's a lot that medication can do, but then I'd be looking to what other things that have you introduced alongside the medication that has also contributed to your progress. Yeah, that makes complete sense. Okay, so last question from Julietta, who says, I know from my mother that my dad has, quote, a problem with his brain. He attends a psychiatrist and he has medication. However, he's hiding it from me and my siblings. My question is, how can I let him know that I won't change my mind about him? when he's so shy and scared about it. So is the question around them wanting to know the risk of them having mental health difficulties or just around just trying to support? I, th- I think it's around trying to support. So as in, she's aware that her dad is seeing a psychiatrist and is on medication, but won't talk to or, ha- or is like hides it from his children. Yeah. And how can she kind of support him? Which to me, I, I think there's a line there with kind of like privacy and yeah. letting people do what they want. But I think that's the difficulty because I think if you make, I mean, if you make it aware that you know exactly what's going on, then it, it does that create difficulties between your parents in the sense that then dad feels that he's been betrayed because his confidentiality has been betrayed. But I, what I would say is about creating opportunities for you and your dad sort of more authentically, that might mean in time he may choose to confide in you. So again, I I can't comment in terms of, I don't know what the sort of pre-existing relationship was and and is this a fact, and I do a lot of work in terms of family therapy as well. Um, And and those sort of family dynamics can also impact on someone's recovery or or not. Um, So is this a family that would normally talk about things like mental health? Mm. And in which case, if if they weren't, is it likely that your dad wouldn't have come forward about his mental health had he not been seeing a psychiatrist, for instance? Um, So I would try to create moments between you and your dad or as a family that are more authentic, that's about spending time together, sort of more, you know, the sort of positive lifestyle changes that we spoke about earlier around socialising, getting outside, maybe going on a walk together that may lend itself further down the line of him feeling it's a safe space to be able to open up to you. And you're already then showing your support whilst it may not be in a direct way. It's it's that indirect and that kind of creating a safe space for him perhaps to open up. He may have a multitude of reasons as to why he doesn't feel able to open up to you it may be shame it may be that he doesn't want to burden you those are those are all barriers that may mean that he doesn't want to or it may be that that's not the done thing in your family as well so I think maybe creating pockets in your week or in the month if that's more realistic for you where you're able to do things as a family that may mean that further down the line that feel that conversation feels more authentic yeah I felt similarly I think in terms of when I read that question I thought it was so nice because you can tell there's so much kind of supportive energy behind it and you know Julieta doesn't doesn't want her dad to think that he couldn't tell her but equally on the flip side 
nobody ever owes you an explanation of what's going on like in their own medical kind of dealings if you like so as much as you would be supportive and that is amazing and great and brilliant your dad still is entitled to his privacy and he gets to decide whether he tells you about it or not so I mean I agree with you in terms of if you can in the small ways kind of create an atmosphere where people know that you'll be supportive that's great but don't take it as an insult or you know people thinking you won't understand or people thinking you won't be supportive don't kind of make it about you in terms of whether they want to talk to you or not and I think also in this situation it is a bit more nuanced in the sense that it sounds like her dad's already seeing the most appropriate professional and he has is getting that support but I suppose in if it was a different scenario that was being presented where you were worried about your dad, he wasn't seeking support and his mental health was deteriorating. That's a different situation entirely. And I would suggest then that lends itself to having a conversation with him. So I I kind of don't want people to think it's, you know, if you're really concerned about someone that you should never approach them. And again, one of the tools that I use uh, to have a conversation, more confident conversations is something called face fear. So about it's, having face-to-face conversations, being attentive. So listening to that other person's not interjecting and you bringing your own agenda, actually listening to what they've got to say, staying calm. So rather than kind of getting tearful or maybe angry with them and and forcing them to open up, actually trying to keep your emotions in check to to convey this idea that it is a safe space for them to open up. And E is about encouragement. And then the fear aspect is coming back to our day in the life of exercise that we spoke to earlier, what are the facts? What have you noticed that shifted from the norm? So I've noticed you're not getting out of bed until later. You're a lot more irritable than normal. You don't want to sit down and eat dinner with us all. So what are the facts that you've noticed? And E is explained. So put those into context. Don't reel off a list of things that you've noticed without kind of, because that yeah. can get someone's back up. So actually say, look, you know, you're normally someone that's straight out of bed on the morning. You're normally the person that insists that we all sit around the table together. So put those concerns into context and a and r is agree in action and review so it may be that first conversation never amounts to anything but maybe agreeing to look I'm, I'm really worried about you and I know you're saying things are fine but how about we come back to this in a day a couple of days and I, we do another check-in or how about we start going to the gym together or how about we we do a walk in a few few days time and and try and, and clear the air and I think Often there may be a situation where someone's gone through a breakup, in which case the change in mental state and how they feel can be understandable and attributed to that, in which case you'd notice a, an improvement. So what I'd say is, and I know we've answered the, sort of the guest um, listener's question already, but I think if you are someone who's concerned about someone else's mental health and you have those same worries about kind of prying or um, them not opening up to you, I think face fear can be quite a useful um starting point to have a sort of more confident structured conversation if you want to know about opportunities to send in questions for upcoming guests then follow us on instagram or twitter at good gs or you can email the podcast at goodinfluencepod at gmail.com before you go i've got three things i ask every guest and that's if listeners want to find out more about what we've been talking about could you please recommend us something to read something to listen to and something to watch so I think something to read, and I think this leads quite nicely onto because I've thrown a load of habits out there that actually may feel quite overwhelming in terms of people not knowing where to start with them. So a book that I read last year was Atomic Habits, and I felt like I was a bit late to the party with that one. So it's Atomic Habits by James Clear. And I just found the book just really actionable, really sensible advice. And one of the things he talks about within the book is something called habit stacking. So I think this idea of just starting a habit out of the blue is is something that we're not necessarily likely to commit to. So what the one of the things that he talks about is actually putting a new habit and stacking it on top of an existing one. Mm. So as an example, if you are someone that has a coffee on a morning, maybe 
to get your exposure to natural daylight, you may decide to open the back doors and, and sit outside and have your coffee outside, as, as an example. And, mm, and it's, more, it's more likely that those habits will stick if you stack them on top of an existing habit. So I can't recommend that book enough. I really, yeah, a really great read. Um, so something to listen to. So I'll do a bit of a plug in the sense that, so I've written a couple of books and my most recent book, The Mind Medic, came out a couple of years ago and I did an audiobook for that. So a lot Perfect. of the advice that I've given around here, if you ask someone that likes to listen to stuff, maybe it's on your commute, um, the audiobook, so the Mind Medic, um, that's on um, on all good um, audiobook platforms. Mm-hmm. And something to watch. So I generally I'm not on TikTok all that often, but someone that I do like to follow on there is... Dr. Julie Smith, who I know you've had on the podcast previously. And we do love Dr. Julie. Just fantastic. In terms of her ability to sort of create really simple, actionable videos from seemingly quite difficult constructs. And I, I think, yeah, it's a real skill. And I could watch her videos all day. So if you're someone that doesn't really know where to start and you prefer to be able to watch um sort of tips and tricks i think she's um, a perfect place to start thank you so much for listening and thank you sarah for joining me if you enjoyed the episode i'd love you to subscribe to the podcast on whichever platform you're using and if you've got an extra minute you can leave a rating and a review as well your reviews make a big difference and help other people find the podcast see you next week ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 